Mother's Day has always been uh, a day, day that I've wrestled with as a pastor because I know that it's a day that can, you know, drum up all kinds of strong emotions and diverse emotions. For some people today is a day of primarily thanksgiving and for others a day of longing. Uh, for some it's a day primarily of fondness and for others a day of sadness and I suspect for most, if not all, of us, it is some combination of feelings. And that would be true even on a quote-unquote normal Mother's Day. But for our church in particular, this is a time of transition. And I want to see if we can't kill two or three or four birds with one stone this morning. We're going to use 2 Timothy 3 as a way of meditating on the gift and the power of legacy of the things that have been handed down to us and the things that we will, by God's grace, hand down to others. And I'm not talking about genetics or material legacies. I'm talking about what Paul calls in 2 Timothy 1, the good deposit, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the life that he calls us to lead in light of that gospel. Of course, that is something that God has used many mothers to do. Some of us owe a great deal of thanks to God for how he used our moms to teach and to show us what it means to follow Jesus. But you don't have to be a mother or a father. You certainly don't have to be a perfect mother or father to be faithful with the good deposit entrusted to you. This is simply what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So I want us to see this morning the great honor that God bestows on motherhood and the great potential in this most basic of human institutions, but I'm also praying that God would remind all of us about what He calls us all to do. So let's read together in 2 Timothy 3. We're going to begin in verse 10. Paul says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful for that truth that this is your word breathed out by you, and therefore profitable for us. And we hear our brother Paul say that your breathed out word is profitable for teaching. So I pray that we would be taught this morning. He says that it's profitable for reproof. So I pray that we would be um, reproved, rebuked by your word. It's profitable for correction. So, Lord, I pray that you would use your word to correct us, to put us back onto the path that you've called us to walk. And it is profitable for training in righteousness. So, Lord, would you 
make it so that the result of this would be that you would produce righteousness in your people. And so, Lord, would you do this work through your word? We trust you to do it, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to start with just a very simple observation about the passage we just read. Sometimes it's helpful just to notice something that's simple and staring you right in the face. And that is that there is only one imperative in this paragraph. It's in verse 14. Paul says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. That's the only command in these verses, in this paragraph. It is continue. Now, that's not to say it's the only important thing Paul says here. For example, when explaining why Timothy should continue, Paul says in verse 16, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That's why Timothy should continue in what he has learned and has firmly believed because the foundation on which he is standing is the unchanging, breathed-out Word of God. But I also want you to notice there's a more personal reason for Timothy to continue. Again, this is in verse 14. He says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Which begs the question, from whom did Timothy learn the gospel? Well, certainly from Paul. We're going to see more about that in a moment. But Paul was not the only one from whom Timothy learned God's word. Verse 15, he goes on to say, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know exactly how old Timothy was the first time Paul ever came through his hometown of Lystra. So he may, may mean that from an early age he began to hear Paul preach the gospel and hear the word from him. But there's a pastor named uh, John Piper who said of those two verses, verses 14 and 15, he says, The apostle of Jesus Christ in this text bestows on motherhood and grandmotherhood a great honor. Now, where, where does John Piper get that idea that in verses 14 and 15, the apostle Paul is bestowing on motherhood and grandmotherhood a great honor because if you parachute into 2 Timothy 3 the way we did this morning, it doesn't seem like Paul says anything about motherhood or about grandmotherhood in this passage. But hold your place here in chapter 3. Glance back, page or two, to chapter 1, verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says to Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So it certainly seems like those two women, Timothy's mother and grandmother, played some kind of role in him learning God's Word. So that when Paul says in chapter 3, verse 15, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings that John Piper is absolutely right, that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is bestowing upon motherhood and grandmotherhood a great honor because he is reminding Timothy, Timothy, one of the reasons why you must continue is because of the faithfulness of these two women in your life who have taught you this very thing, who have entrusted this good deposit to you. Now, I want us to kind of step back and... and 
think about the, the context of the relationship between Timothy and his mother and grandmother and also Timothy and Paul. And Luke tells us all about this in Acts 14 and Acts 16. We know from Acts 16 that Timothy was the son of a Jewish woman um, who was a believer. The first time we ever hear Timothy uh, by name is Acts 16.1, where Luke says there that, that Paul came to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, who was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. So Timothy was, in other words, what we would call today biracial. His mother was... Jewish, his father was a Greek. More significantly, Luke says that his mother was a believer, and his father, it's implied at least, was, was not a believer. So when Paul says here in 2 Timothy 3.15 that from childhood, Timothy had been acquainted with the sacred writings. The sacred writings he's referring to there are the Old Testament. So he's saying that, Timothy, remember that from an early age, your mother and grandmother taught, taught you, you God's Word. He taught, they taught you the Old Testament. They read stories to you or they told stories to you. That somewhere along the way, those two women came to trust in Jesus as God's Messiah and Redeemer. Paul said there in chapter 1, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. So somewhere along the way, they heard the gospel. They came to trust in Jesus, as did Timothy. And so Timothy is an example of what it can look like to pass on a legacy of faith and of trust in God's Word. And when you think about the fact that the legacy of Lois and Eunice was not in Timothy alone, but also in the people who were later impacted by his ministry. I just want us to kind of stop and think about the fact that we have two books of the Bible that were written to Timothy, to the son of uh, Eunice and the grandson of Lois, we are now beneficiaries of the ministry of God through Timothy, through Paul, because of those two women. Thousands of years ago, and yet here we are hearing God's Word in part because of them. Of course, Paul is honoring biological motherhood, but he's doing more than that as well. Right? So whether or not you have ever been a mother or ever will be a mother, whether or not your own mother entrusted a gospel legacy to you, there's something here for all of us. There is an invitation for us to walk in a path that others walked before us. Therefore, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. I don't know if, I don't know if your mom is in that cloud, but there are, there are lots of people in that cloud. So it's an invitation for us to walk in a path that others walked before us and for us to walk with others on that path, others who will continue on this path long after we are gone. God is interested always in how His Word gets from one generation to the next. You hear this in the Old Testament. One generation says to the next about the righteousness of God. This is something that we are called to receive and we are called to pass on to others, to entrust to others. And you see how that had happened in Timothy's life, not only how he had received this from his mother and grandmother, but also what he had received from Paul. Paul was not Timothy's earthly father, even though 
He often called Timothy his son. But he was certainly, Paul was certainly among those from whom Timothy had learned the gospel. So when he says there in verse 14, As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. He's talking about Lois and Eunice, but he's also talking about himself. He's reminding Timothy, you, you've learned this from me. In fact, he, he encourages Timothy by telling him in verse 10, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. I want you to notice specifically how Paul mentions Lystra in verse 11, because that is the city where Timothy was from. And we know from the book of Acts that Lystra was a city that Paul visited several times. I want to just kind of walk you through a summary of this to help you understand what those two verses would have meant to Timothy when Paul says, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Pause there. What's the difference between patience and steadfastness? The easiest way to distinguish is patience is endurance with difficult people, and steadfastness is endurance in difficult circumstances. And so Timothy has been a witness to all of that. I, I want to just kind of walk you through this. So on his first visit to Lystra. You read about this in Acts 14. Uh, a crowd of people stone Paul, drag him out of the city, and leave him for dead. That's the first time he goes there. Uh, he gets stoned, dragged out of the city, and it was so bad that they, they thought they had killed him. And so it's kind of worth asking ourselves, uh, what would I have done if I went somewhere to do ministry and the people there literally tried to kill me. I can't answer that question for, for you or for me, but I can tell you what Paul did. This is uh, in the very next verse. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. I don't want you to miss something crucial there. When the, the disciples gathered about him. So yes, there was a crowd who tried to kill him, but there were also now in Lystra some disciples of Jesus. And who knows if Timothy's mother and grandmother were among those people who went out of the city to gather around Paul and to help pick him up. Maybe even Timothy, young Timothy, was there. I don't know. We can't say for certain, but it's worth thinking about. So Paul, nearly dead, stands back up and goes back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas move on to Derby, another city, Luke doesn't, Luke doesn't tell us much about what happened there. He simply says, this is in Acts 14, 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. So if you're you know, keeping tabs here, Paul went to Lystra. They tried to kill him. They, they nearly did. Dragged him out of the city. He gets up, goes back into the city, probably you know, gets a meal and goes to sleep, gets up the next day, goes somewhere else to a nearby city. Preaches there, don't know how long, but then he goes back. He goes back to the place where people tried to kill him. He goes back to the place where there were probably some people who still wanted to kill him. But there were also disciples there, remember? 
They returned to, to Iconium, to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the soul of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And then the next verse says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Timothy had a front row seat to this ministry. He had witnessed firsthand the persecutions and sufferings that Paul endured in faith and in love for the followers of Jesus in those cities. So when Paul says to him in verse 10, You, Timothy, Timothy you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. This is what he means. You have been a witness to all of this, Timothy. These are not just things I'm saying to you. I'm not asking you to do anything I haven't been willing to do myself. You have seen this. You have seen what this word that I'm asking you to continue in, what this gospel that I'm asking you to hold on to, you have seen what it has done in my life. And of course, no disciple can simply be a spectator. Because after reminding Timothy about his own steadfastness, Paul tells him in verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So Timothy... What I'm asking you to do is I'm asking you to follow me, not just in a, a mental, cognitive way, but to I'm asking you, Timothy, to walk on the same path that you've seen me walk. This is no different than what Jesus told his disciples in John 15. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So if we really want to follow Jesus, we should not expect to skirt through life without any trouble, because we're not greater than him. This is why Paul urges Timothy to continue. Continue. The command is not be persecuted. He's, he's telling Timothy, if you're faithful, that's going to happen. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But the command is not to pursue persecution. The command is to continue regardless of the circumstances. It is abide. That's the, that's the command. Abide. Stand firm. Don't shift from your current path. I think as I was thinking through this this week, um, there's a word that we have that we use that I think may help us to uh, wrap our minds around what Timothy or what Paul is telling Timothy. And, and the word is stubborn. That's, that's what it means to continue. It means to be unyielding. And the thing about stubbornness is that it comes in more than one variety. In fact, if you were to look up the word stubborn in a dictionary, you would find that usually the very first entry, there are basically broadly two primary definitions of the word. The first, first is to be unreasonably unyielding. 
And the synonym for that kind of stubbornness is mulish. That's straight from Merriam-Webster, mulish, someone who acts like a mule. But then you would find, right under that, another sense of the word, justifiably unyielding. And the synonym for that kind of stubbornness is resolute. Followers of Christ should strive for resoluteness, not mulishness. I think on Mother's Day, some of us can admit that our moms had to be stubborn with us. They had to be resolute in their love because we were mulish in so many other ways. And Church Nana is saying amen to that. <laughs> think about if you were hanging, hanging from, from a cliff and you have a friend there and they're, you know, they've grabbed you by the hand and they're the one thing that's keeping you from falling. In that moment, you want somebody who's stubborn, right? You don't want somebody who gives up easy. You want somebody who is resolute. What Paul is urging Timothy to pursue is not a selfish, mulish stubbornness. He's not saying, Timothy, just do what you want to do regardless of what anybody else thinks. Notice specifically what he tells Timothy to continue in. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. That's what he's supposed to be stubborn in. That's what he's supposed to be resolute in. Be stubborn about the things you've learned and have firmly believed. And as he goes on to explain, it's clear that Paul means specifically that Timothy should continue in the Word of God, right? He talks about how uh, from childhood he had been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So Paul is telling Timothy to continue in the Word of God, to continue in the gospel of Jesus Christ because these things are unchanging, which is why we must continue in them. But as we think about how to apply this paragraph, we have to distinguish between those things which are unchanging and those things which are changing. The gospel of Jesus is unchanging, right? When it comes to the message of of, of God's Word that we believe and that we proclaim, the good deposit that we guard and entrust to others, we simply cannot improve upon it. There are many areas in, of life in which innovation can be a good thing, right? I mean, we, you know, used to, uh, you think about what some of us carry around in a phone, it's a digital camera, it's an atlas, it's the internet, it's a phone book, it's all these things wrapped in this tiny little package that we can carry around with us wherever we go. And sometimes it's a help and sometimes it's a burden, but that's innovation. Innovation can be a very good thing, but when it comes to the gospel, innovation is not a good thing. It's not admirable. Tim Keller put it this way, he said, we never get beyond the gospel in our Christian life to something more advanced. The gospel is not the first step in a stairway of truths. It's more like the hub in a wheel of truth. Everything connects to it. Everything revolves around it. The gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity. It is the A to Z of Christianity. So we have to continue in that which is unchanging. There are some who are tempted to 
try to change that which is unchanging, to, to try to alter the message that has been entrusted to us because they think we need to make it more palatable for the world in which we live. And so if we'll be faithful disciples of Jesus, that's not an option for us. We may strive to articulate it in ways that are meaningful to people in our context. We may find fresh ways to communicate it. I doubt, for example, that Paul conceived of anything like the Internet and the challenges and opportunities it would present to the church. But for the content of the message itself, we, we cannot tinker with it. We can't just say, okay, well, you know... Um, we live in a world, a time when, you know, so many people have difficulty believing some of these things that the Bible says. You know, people, they, 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 don't, they, don't, they don't really believe in the virgin birth and, and the resurrection and miraculous things like that. So maybe let's just avoid those things because, you know, that's kind of hard for people to get over. Or, or, you know, we live in a world where people don't like to hear about things like sin. You know, that just kind of offends people and you know, God's wrath, maybe we could just kind of stick with, with love and, and purpose and hope and all these nice things that make people feel good. Paul told the, <clears throat> told the Corinthians, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That's what he said. He said the gospel sounds ridiculous to people who are perishing. But to us, it is everything. It is the wisdom of God and the power of God. Paul said that the, the message of Christ crucified is a stumbling block. So if we say, well, you know, people have a hard time getting over things like that. Well, they had a hard time getting over things like that 2,000 years ago. And yet... Paul said we have to be faithful. We have to, if, if we're going to offend people, let's at least offend them with the truth, with the gospel. And then he said in 2 Corinthians 4, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So we, we can't cater the content of our message that might result in fleeting external success, but it will fall far short of faithfulness to the one who called us out of darkness into light. So we have to continue in that which is unchanging. And yet, at the same time, we, we need to see that while the gospel is unchanging, the world is always changing. The world in which we're living, the world to whom we're trying to articulate the gospel it is always changing. I can remember uh, when I was in college, we had a professor and he was talking about uh, something that, that missionaries call contextualization, which means that uh, when you're trying to communicate the gospel, you need to think about obviously what the Bible says, but you also need to think about the people to whom you're trying to communicate that. And he, he was sort of saying, you know, what do you, what do you think about that? Do you think that we should think about the people that we're trying to communicate the gospel to, or should we just go in, you know, guns blazing and just whatever, just read them scripture or something like that? And someone said, well, you know, I don't think we should worry about that. And he said, well, um, let's, let's just say you speak English, but they don't speak English. You think, do you think that's something you should think about? And they were like, yeah. 
probably, because if, if, I, if I speak English and I go somewhere and they don't even speak English, it doesn't matter. I could stand up and I could preach the most clear, articulate, faithful message, and it's not going to make a dent. It's not going to get into their heads because they can't understand it. You see Jesus do this in John 3 and John 4. He goes to, or Nicodemus comes to him, middle of the night. Nicodemus, this man who had every reason to have pride in himself, and what did Jesus say to him? You've got to be born again. Your first birth is not, not enough. Then John 4, he is trying to get some water. He encounters this Samaritan woman at the well. What does he say to her? You have to be born again? No. He says, uh, you keep coming to this well for water. I have, I have water to offer you that is spring up to eternal life. Same message, right? He didn't, he didn't change the message. It's not like he said to one person, you've got to trust in me, and the next person, don't worry about it. It's that he, he said the same thing, but he said it in slightly different ways that would make sense to the person to whom he would speak that would, that would really cut to their heart. So to Nicodemus, one who was prideful, one who had a lot of stock in who he was, Jesus said, you've got to cast all that aside, Nicodemus, and you have to be born again. And to a woman who knew what it was like to, to be thirsty, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually, who was constantly searching for something, Jesus said, I have something to offer you that will satisfy you eternally, and you won't, have to, you won't have to keep looking for it. I have it. It's here if you'll receive it. And so that's what we have to do as followers of Christ. We have to stand on the truth. We have to cling to the Word that, that is unchanging, and yet we always have to ask ourselves, how can we be faithful to communicate this, to articulate this to people in a way that will cut to their heart that will make sense so that they will be able to see who Jesus is for them and what he has done for them. An illustration that I think might help us think about how to apply this. I had a, a friend of mine a few weeks ago say to me, uh, you know, Matt, what's the difference between oak trees and willow trees? And I said, I'm, I'm not a horticulturalist, man, I don't know. <laughs> and he said, oak trees are really, really strong, right? You know, they're, they're really strong. If you want a tree to hang a tire swing from, an oak is a good choice because it is firm, it's rigid, it doesn't, it doesn't move. Willow trees, on the other hand, they're really flexible. They don't, they don't stand up as tall as oaks. They, they always kind of seem to be bending down, that sort of thing. But he said when a, a tornado or a hurricane comes through and it gets to blowing, oaks, what happens? They don't, they don't often snap in half, but they... That a lot of times they'll just get knocked over. Their roots will just come right up and they'll fall over. The ground gets wet and then they just try to stand firm. They try to hold on and then boom, they get knocked over. But the willow, man, he just kind of goes with the flow. He just kind of bends. He bends, but his roots never give way. And uh, the point that this friend was making was, Matt, you've got to learn how to be a little bit more like a willow and not so much like an oak. And I think we can, we can learn something from that as well, that the oak is completely unyielding, so much so that its roots will often give way and it gets knocked over on its side. But the willow can bend and give while staying firmly rooted in place. That's kind of what Paul is telling Timothy to do. Timothy, just hang on, continue, stand on this solid ground Cling to this foundation. And if we will be faithful disciples of Jesus, then we'll have to be stubborn 
in the right ways, unyieldingly resolute when it comes to clinging to the gospel, and at the same time learning some flexibility when it comes to how we measure what it means to be faithful with the good deposit and how we entrust that to the next generation. It requires, as we hear from Paul, patience, steadfastness, and love. It requires what we might call selfless stubbornness. Stubbornness not for my sake. Stubbornness not because I like to get my way. Stubbornness not because I want everybody to bend to me, but stubbornness that clings to the gospel and that loves people and wants to serve and not just sit. Stubbornness that wants to encourage both in word and in deed to help hold other people up, to help call them along this path with us. So may God give us grace to do that for His glory. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation here in a moment, and uh, I pray that God would help us to respond to His Word, His unchanging, powerful, truthful Word. Let me pray for us. Lord, we're thankful for how you have spoken in your word, a word that is sure and true and final. Lord, that we don't have to feel around in the dark or look for more revelation from you, but all that we need, you have spoken, you have given to us. And so, Lord, I pray uh, that we would find in your word a uh, solid ground in the midst of often chaotic, uh, the chaotic world in which we live, and that we would cling to that which is unchanging. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to have a selfless stubbornness, that we would be resolute in our convictions about who you are and what you have said and what you have done. And Lord, that we would also be resolute in our determination to, to love one another to encourage one another, to walk with one another. And Lord, I pray that you would, uh, through this selfless stubbornness, that you would yield good fruit, that you would uh, yield fruit for your glory, and that all would be because of your grace. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.